Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted to be joined by my guest today, Dr. Neil Finn, who's a senior lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Edinburgh. Neil, thanks ever so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on. So you've been through a very interesting experience of, of late, and I know that your story was publicized uh, in the media. Uh, I think a lot of people won't be familiar uh, with what happened to you, and I think it's probably best coming from you. So perhaps you could start at the beginning and uh, tell us what happened. Well, interesting is a nice way to describe it. Um, possibly life-enhancing in the long run, but not pleasant. Uh, so that the, the, the real start date, I suppose, was at the beginning of April when I woke up one morning to find myself transformed overnight into a bigot <laughs> and uh, a racist and a transphobe and uh, a misogynist and a rape apologist. There had been a very sudden and clearly well orchestrated online pylon that had a kind of horrible familiarity to it, although it came to me as a complete bolt from the blue, a real a real shocker. I was alerted to it by some sympathetic students who got in touch saying, Neil, we think some people are attacking you online and we think it looks terribly unfair. So these were strangers to me because of course this was mid COVID. So all students, all however many, 500, 800 students, I'm not sure how many were taking my classes uh, over the past couple of years, but near, certainly near, nearly a thousand over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm all online, so all in a sense, strangers to me. I mean, we try to, to, to make human contact online, but um, it, it's hard with big classes. So some got in touch and told me that I, I was being attacked. The students who were attacking me were mainly doing so from behind a veil of anonymity. Um, and what was really weird was that none of them, to my knowledge, had at any point even hinted to me or as far as I knew to any of my colleagues that there was a problem. Yeah. Uh, so that was a little strange. I looked at my Twitter account because initially it focused on, on my tweets, um, which some said they were disgruntled by, uh, actually more than that, triggered and traumatized by. Um, and I'd suddenly more or less doubled my very modest number of Twitter followers and all the new followers seemed to have a lot of numbers in their names. So they were all anonymous too. So um, I tried to find out what the cause was because I'd never been accused of all of those things or any of those things before. I'd led an incredibly sheltered life and had lectured for 34 years without any serious incidents, without complaints. It was bizarre. Mm. And shall we go back to the what precipitated all of these accusations? And as you've pointed out, to be suddenly accused of all these things that are so alien to your personality and outlook uh, must have been a shock. And it, it had all come about because of a, uh, a couple of things, hadn't it? Firstly, there was the uh, resisting whiteness conference in Edinburgh that you uh, criticized. Um, and there was also the renaming of the David Hume Tower, which you'd also criticized. So perhaps you could explain what it was about these two things uh, that, that led you to, to, be, to be critical of them, and then why that would cause such a reaction. So the truth is, Andrew, the, the, the press reports focused on those two prior incidents. They are the most plausible route to the cancellations. I can't think of any other plausible route because the tweets, as everybody, I mean, literally everybody had a look at the tweets, of course, and everybody said, no, there's nothing offensive there. These are just, these are, pretty bland, inoffensive tweets. So yes. there must have been something prior. And the organization that organized the, uh, organized the pylon, there was, there were several different little online networks that seemed to collaborate. But one of the lead organizers was, was also a lead organizer of the Resisting Whiteness event and of the cancellation of David Hume, which had happened a few months earlier. So going further back, so back to 2019, I think it was September 2019, so a year and a half or something before, I, the first sign that things were getting really bad on Edinburgh campus um, in terms of divisive politics was uh, a conference called Resisting Whiteness, at which I think initially the plan was reported that uh, white people were not to be allowed in. The university then told them, no, you, you, you do have to let white people in. 
but so they then announced, well, white people can join, but um, there will be a, they will not be allowed into the safe space, which is for people of color, and they will not be allowed the microphone when they adjourned Q and A session. So I did tweet about that, and I also emailed a number of colleagues who I knew were supporting the event, and I knew some decent people were involved in the event. So I was, you know, puzzled but also flabbergasted. I'd never seen naked, outright uh, racialization like that on campus. That was new to me, and I was deeply disturbed. So I did complain about it. Um, but in a quiet and relatively modest, reasonably non-confrontational way. But I just said, please, if we're going to do anti-racism, let's do it without being racist. <laughs> so then that was, so things went quiet after that. And some of my colleagues weren't happy with me because they strongly disagreed with me on that issue. Um, but things went quiet. And then suddenly during COVID, uh, word got out that the David Hume Tower was going to lose its name and why? Because the, our most famous alumnus, the philosopher David Hume, uh, some 350 years ago, had put one footnote in one of his essays um, speculating on different levels of intelligence of different populations around the world. So a thing that was fairly standard at the time, wasn't central to his philosophy, but he was to be cancelled because of that, because that made him, in modern parlance, a racist. Um, so a number of us, a small number, um, objected to that and said, look, if we're going to cancel David Hume, let's at least have a conversation. Yes. It might be an interesting conversation, well worth having, but let's have that conversation, not just rip his name off his tower, which is quite simply an act of crass vandalism. Um, so, yeah, I, so I was slightly more heartened to see that at least there was a handful of us. I think there were maybe six or seven, eight of us maybe, who publicly objected to that. Whereas the resisting whiteness event I have to say I felt terribly alone because um, I could not see anybody else yeah. who, had a, who had voiced any objections to what I saw as a really serious political development on campus. And when you uh, objected to both of these things, because they were in quite relatively quick succession from what you describe in terms of the uh, chronology of this, what was the response from the university itself? So the university... Uh, in, in the resisting whiteness event, it took a long time to respond to my, so I, I, I did ask, I knew some people who would have been involved in decisions and whether or not it should be allowed to go ahead. I queried them. They said that they had challenged it, but they did not have the power to stop it going ahead. And that was the end of the story. And mm -hmm. clearly they preferred, but we just ignore it and get on with our lives, which arguably is a reasonable thing you know if it's just a one-off and somebody's made a terrible mistake perhaps it would have been best just to ignore it but um in my view it was a big you know there was a serious organization of a serious event it had done very very serious damage to the university's reputation people outside the university had noticed it and were absolutely horrified same as i was so um so it, it did seem that we had to have that conversation. Yes. And then, so you, you raised these objections uh, and it, it still went ahead, like, like you said, uh, but then all of a sudden come the denunciations. And you, you've said that they, they, they tried to find tweets that you said, I think one of the tweets you'd said was that civilization is for everyone. Is that, am I? Paranoid? That's actually there on my, whatever you call it, the masthead. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen on civilization. I spent the first half of my career working on international development and, and social progress is my main professional, social progress and happiness are my main professional interests. So it's pretty central to what I do. And how can, I mean, did anyone attempt, did any of these activists who are making these complaints, did anyone try to provide some kind of rationale for how they could, because I think they described that phrase as exhibit A of proof of uh, your, your commitment to white supremacy. Can you, can you, did they give any sense of where they were coming from there? No. So the, 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 I mean, the two interesting things about the initial online attacks, one is that there was no warning and there were no questions. So there was, there was a, a clear reluctance on the, on the part of the attackers to actually engage with any ideas. So that was, that was troubling. Um, uh, the, the other aspect is there was no rationale to any of, there were just labels. So, yes. so, so yeah, that was evidence of 
racism or white supremacy or something like that. Um, other tweets were evidence of racism. I, a tweet objecting to a curfew on all men, uh, which uh, the Baroness Jenny Jones in the House of Lords had proposed. Some people say it was a joke. I don't think it was a joke um, at the time, but I had pointed out that's not a very mature response to a problem of public safety. That was misogynist, and, and, and that also got me labeled as a rape apologist. Um, a tweet in support of JK Rowling got me, as lots of other people have, labeled as a transphobe. Mm. So it was all pretty, pretty simplistic, but also pretty monosyllabic. Yes. Do you have any sense of who these activists were? Were they predominantly students at the university? Had they come from outside the university? Do you have any sense of what, what this was? I don't even know that. I'm afraid, you know, I, I am a, a chap in my 60s and my, my understanding of social media is a little bit limited. So I'm still not entirely clear how much I could have investigated at the time to look into the various Instagram and Facebook groups to find out who was who. They, the ones that had names were mainly just first names. Uh, so there was no way in my sort of the however many hundred students I was teaching, I could tell which ones, if any, were in my classes. Um, but no, no way I could know whether they were at the university. And that, yeah. and then I what? Presume that the university does have that capability. If they if they wanted to take it seriously, they could, they would they could have asked around to find out who was involved. So this is my my next question. Were you suspended at this point after these complaints came in? So I tried to stay really calm. You know, um, I, I said to myself that I should be old enough to take this kind of stuff. If it had happened in a class, you'd have just had a discussion at the end of a class and gone for a cup of coffee and it would have been fine. Um, but it happened during COVID. We were all several removes from, from one another. So I did immediately try to think of constructive ways. So I tried to engage on Instagram and Facebook, uh, but various people immediately advised me, please don't do that. They're not going to listen to reason. So I had a brief attempt and uh, there were very calm and reasonable attempts. And, and I looked again recently and, and it does seem that those attempts had actually sparked some kind of a conversation on those sites because a, a lot of other students had then weighed in in my defense saying, I, you know, I think it does look as though you've misunderstood Neil here, mm, yeah. but I didn't engage in that for very long because I felt it might escalate. So I then thought, then I heard that there was, I saw that there was a threat of a, of, of a grievance, of a collective letter of grievance from students because they, they, they weren't going to engage with me on Twitter. They weren't going to send me emails. They weren't going to engage in my classes. So they were going to organize a letter of complaint. So I said to my head of department and HR, we should have a mediation meeting, shouldn't we? This is how you resolve things, is through conversation. And they were very silent and would not say whether that was going to be possible. But the next thing I knew, I was removed from all student-facing activities and told there was an investigation. Now, I was pleased. An investigation sounds good. If something so as bad as that happens, you want there to be investigation. You want to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. The weird thing though, and this was the, the, really, the, the, the real knockdown thing for me, a day before my first meeting on the investigation, which was actually a couple of weeks later, I learned two things. One is I learned that I was being investigated, not the students, right? So this was, this was a, suddenly it turned from an inquiry into a disciplinary hearing without my knowledge. And secondly, the investigation into me, but not into the students, was being launched, even though the students had decided not to, not to formally complain. So this was a response solely to the barrage of, uh, well, let's call it what, what it is, libel against you online. Uh, it sounds a little bit like the university took the part of the abusers here. It looked very like it to me. It really did look like it to me. There was a there was an email of complaint from a small number, and I'll never know how who they were or how many. Um, I was told some of them were anthropology students who had taken my classes. Um, so I did again the day before the the meeting get to see that email, which was a kind of a, it was a template letter that they'd posted online and got a few signatories. Yes. 
So the, here's a twist that was almost funny. Um, in the first paragraph of that email, they say, this is not an, uh, this is not an attempt uh, at cancellation. This is not uh, a challenge to Neil Thin's freedom of speech. This is not in any way an attempt to question Neil's character. And so when I read that, I thought, this reminds me of that. Do you remember that picture that might by Magritte with the pipe that says underneath it, this is not a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> right, this is not a pipe. That's what it reminded me of. It was-, yes. it was So they're, they're, they're accusing you of all these horrendous things and they're saying, but we are in no way attempting to besmirch yeah. Neil Thing's character. Yeah. I mean, Neil is a racist, double. a rape apologist, a scumbag, a crusty old man. He's a misogynist, a transphobe, uh, etc. But no, we're not trying to um, to cancel him. And there's a, there's a two word phrase in Scotland we have to respond to that kind of thing, Andrew. You may have come across this. Also, <laughs> the tilt of the head. It goes, I right. <laughs> yes, I mean, what is going on here? Because I mean, obviously, you have some expertise in anthropology. What is going on here when people are? I mean, is it just simply um, disingenuous? Is it just simply what they call gaslighting? They're just going to deny what they are doing while they are doing it. Uh, in order to make you doubt your own senses? Or is there something a bit more, in a way, sinister going on here, which is actually, they have kind of bought into a, a delusion? So the, the, the tragedy is because we were denied mediation, and I don't think that is now going to happen. I think it's almost too late now. Mm. I, I mean, I'd love to try still, if some of the students came forward and said, yeah, we'd like to go for a coffee with Neil and to talk it through, mm. I'd, I'd go for it. Um, Even now, because uh, I might learn something from from the the motivations of the people involved, but mm -hmm. I will never know how sinister it was, or whether it was just they were bored, uh, they didn't know what to do. It was just they um, a kind of a, a moment of online madness. And you know, I've seen obviously examples since then of a lot of cancel cultural events on campuses around the world. A lot of academics have got me in touch with me to tell me their stories. Yeah. I'm hearing more, more of those as the months go on. And they all have a kind of ghastly familiarity to them. Um, I, but they, um, the, um, the, the, the thing that uh, struck me was that the, they could not possibly have been sincere in their accusations. I mean, yeah. they, they might have been uh, they might have been sincere in thinking I was an old fogey, right winger, um, I, or somebody who, as they put it, didn't quite align with their views. Yes. Um, but I don't think they could have been sincere in believing that I was the, the kind of evil monster that is described in those terms. Well, this is the question that goes back to you know even the precedent of the witch hunts in Salem, Massachusetts, insofar as. To, you know, we could debate endlessly about to what extent the girls were seeing uh, demons or believed that those things were real or to what extent it was fraudulent. Um, but I think what we're seeing on these university campuses more and more, when, the, when these activists gang together and, and find a target, when they taste blood, it does have the qualities and the hallmarks of group hysteria. Hmm. Would that be right? Yes. And, and we, of course, we must remember that if that was a kind of mini local moral panic, help we might have a this a, you know, somebody in our anthropology department who doesn't quite sing from the same hymn sheet as the others. That was a, was a kind of moral panic about me, but that was in the context of a much bigger kind of UK-wide moral panic about various kind of social injustice movements. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the David Hume, the denaming of the David Hume Tower, for example, there's no chance that that would have even been proposed if it hadn't been for, for the sudden explosion of Black Lives Matter in the UK. Yes, but was there much of a consultation period when it came to the David Hume Tower, or was the decision just arbitra arbitrarily made by those in authority to capitulate uh, or, or out of fear of reprisals from activists? I'm 100% sure that the, the decision was made uh, it, it very swiftly as a panic response because they did not want to see scenes of mass up, uh, on, uh, social unrest on campus. Um, so where, where does this leave you now? Because you've had this uh, investigation. Uh, has that now been resolved? 
So the investigation, it ran for two months. Now, as these things go, that's pretty quick by university standards. Yes. I had lots of American friends got in touch saying, you know, if you'd been in the States, you would have been uh, suspended for probably a year with lots and lots of really horrible investigations into you. And you probably wouldn't have a job at the end of it. Um, who knows, that might have happened in my case, um, had it not been for surprisingly quite a lot of press coverage. So quite a lot of the newspapers picked up on the story, which I thought was a non-story because the, the incident seemed sort of short-lived and trivial. But um, some of the newspapers took a, a, a lot of interest in it and covered it and thought, and they were all entirely supportive of me, some of them very condemnatory of the students, and a lot of them also very condemnatory of the senior management of my university. So I think that put pressure to resolve it quickly. So it was all, on the, on the surface, it was all over in two months. Right. And at the end of two months, I was told, that's fine, Neil, you're cleared. Of the, there were only two, there were no charges, but there were two complaints in the email. One was that you had tweeted offensive stuff, and the other that your, your marking was biased. You're cleared entirely of both of those things. We're moving on with our lives now. So the last, the last I heard, you had said that you weren't prepared to teach until uh, some of those who had made these false allegations are dealt with. Is that still the case? Yeah. So I was left for the so I was left for the prospect of bracing myself and going back into. As far as I knew it, we were going to be back in classrooms. Actually, we're not entirely back in big classrooms, but so far as I knew at the time. We could have been back in big classrooms where, because of the nature of belief that you, you, you believe and you trust your peers, there would, would have been a significant portion of the students in any of my classes had believed at least some of those accusations that, that I, I was a racist and a transphobe, etc., and would have been looking for trouble. That was my perception. And I felt that the university, the very least it owed to me, but also to all of the students concerned, those who had accused me and those who hadn't, I felt the university owed it to all of us to, to take action to clear the matter up. Yes. One, they needed to hold a mediation meeting so we could have conversations and resolve disagreements if we could. But two, they needed to make a public statement saying, this guy, Neil Thin, who you, I called all these things, our students called him all these things, they made these accusations. He, he didn't do any of those things. And by the way, he has served us without blemish for 34 years as our lecturer. He has taught thousands of students without trouble. So we, we declare hereby that we have investigated and found him innocent. But is a declaration of that kind sufficient? Doesn't it reach a point where uh, there should be action taken against these students who have made false allegations, which uh, not only tarnish your, your reputation, but actually make it difficult to do your job, as you pointed out yourself. You know, it's very difficult to, to work in that kind of environment where people might have be harboring these misconceptions about you. Shouldn't there be some kind of punishment, suspension, even expulsion? So um, that, that's a, a really fair argument. And a lot of the commenters on the, in the newspaper said, of course, you should throw these students out. You know, if they'd been in school and done that to one of their school teachers, they'd have been expelled from their school, quite likely. Um, nonetheless, I, I have repeatedly made clear, I have never asked and will not ask, unless things got an awful lot worse, will not ask for them to be disciplined even, let alone thrown out of the university. All I ask, because I'm a huge fan of the power of conversation, is that they be brought into a conversation to discuss things, because the, the root problem appears to be that they were not prepared to engage in conversation. Yes, but the, I mean, the counter argument to that would be that actually that was their fault. You know, they always had the opportunity to approach you and talk to you and say, let's have a discussion about these things. They didn't, they chose to smear you and lie about you. And that yeah. to me, would, it, it seems fairly straightforward that that is a disciplinary matter. And, and also that unless universities are seen to be taking a stand against this kind of behavior, it will actually encourage further similar behavior further down the line and indeed in other institutions. Do you not think that might be true? So I, I, I agree that the, the university has both a moral right and a moral duty 
to eventually discipline people who repeatedly uh, harass and defame uh, fellow students or staff members. Absolutely. All I wanted was to give them a chance first to have that, to, to have a go at that. You know, as you say, they did have the chance before, but I wanted them to be publicly reminded of that chance. You appear to have attacked our, our, our member. Um, he wants to have a conversation with you. Come and have a conversation. Even if it's on Zoom, we'll do it. We'll have a conversation. Let's try that. And if, of course, after that, they then went back and carried on def defaming me and attacking me. Yeah, sure. At some point, you have to say, well, this kind of behavior is, is destructive of the social quality. It's, uh, it, it's, um, it's illegal. What they did was illegal. Um, and if I had the money, I, I you know, I, at some point I could have taken them to a legal challenge. Um, and maybe some people eventually will. But, you know, I always prefer to try good old fashioned conversation first. That's all I'm saying. No, absolutely. That does make sense. I just think that a lot of people listening to this would be thinking to themselves, uh, this is, you know, you do have a, a very strong case uh, against them on legal grounds. Uh, but nevertheless, I do admire what you're saying about attempting uh, to forge conversation, which let's face it, is more than the activists. It's, they haven't extended that courtesy to you. Uh, and, and in a sense, it is, it, is a, it is very strong to take that moral high ground. But the other question about all of this is, are you now satisfied that the university have done enough? Because I look back at other examples. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the case of Anne Henderson, who was rector for three years at the university. And what, you know, by her account, uh, experienced months and months of harassment, false allegations, similar kind of situation from students who completely misrepresented her views, accused her of transphobia, also anti-Semitism, I, I believe. Uh, just the, these these uh, these accusations, which appeared to have been conjured from thin air, and then again and again, the university failed to do anything about it. At one point, even according to her testimony, suggested it would be too much trouble, and that actually maybe we should just let this go. Is this a fault or a flaw within Edinburgh, particularly, or is this something that you now think is endemic across higher education? I think I absolutely think it's endemic across higher education but it's my responsibility to make sure that we address these problems at home first. And, and I think I, I've lost no opportunity to remind senior management of the Anne Henderson case, which as you say, preceded mine. And in some ways was a lot worse. There was only sort of one main issue, uh, but you know, at, at the time she was first denounced by students. I, and I hope a, a few colleagues, I tweeted in her support, I regret now that I didn't directly get in touch with her personally, I didn't know her. Um, whereas to, to, be, to, to be fair in her, as soon as she saw what happened to me, Anne Henderson got straight away in touch with me to say, really, really sorry to see this stuff happening to you, Neil. So that kind of moral support is absolutely crucial when you're, when you're attacked. Um, and uh, in terms of what Edinburgh University needs to do, well, it now has had two high profile cases like this. But also, I cannot mention any particular cases, but of course, I've now become privy to a lot of other cases that have happened under the radar. Yeah. Um, individuals whose cases I can't mention because they desperately don't want to be named and outed. It was horrible for them. Some of them left, others struggled on, but people are being harassed that we don't know about. So when people say cancel culture is just a few of these highly publicized uh, events, no, it's, it's now already very pervasive in the UK. It happened first, I think, went widespread in the USA, but it's happening all over the UK. And of course, we all know now it's happening beyond academia too. And high profile cases like the Kathleen Stock incidents on, on a, the Sussex University campus, that has drawn attention to the problem to a lot of people. In her case, of course, she felt that she couldn't carry on uh, working at the university uh, under those conditions anymore and has and stepped down. Did you ever feel on the brink of making that decision? I mean, how has this affected you uh, on a basic human level? I'm, I'm very, very pleasantly surprised to still be at the university. If you would ask me, so one of the reasons you, you, you very kindly got in touch, you were another many very kind people who got in touch very soon after you saw the denunciations. Um, and I really appreciate that and uh, as you know i said i'm sorry but i can't chat to you uh, in public 
because I don't want to cause trouble. Mm. So at that stage, the best I was hoping for was some kind of early retirement settlement that I could run away. And then over the summer, I realized that was a terrible thing to do because it was leaving the university without challenging its um, students, without challenging the, the fundamental problem it had. So I decided I would stay on for at least a year if I possibly could to try and kind of fight back in some way. Um, now I think there's a decent chance that this time next year I'll be back and lecturing, but I won't take that decision until I see, you asked what, the, what does the university need to do? Well, it needs to um, make absolutely clear that it will much more proactively uphold its freedom of expression policy, linking it with its dignity and respect policy, and that it will challenge anyone, students or staff, who harass one another for in unfair and defamatory ways. If it doesn't show explicitly it's prepared to do that, why would I, why on earth would I go back and teach in that kind of atmosphere? I think that's very interesting. And I think what you're describing about the, the sort of the hidden casualties of cancel culture, the people we don't read about in the media, that, that, that this is more prevalent than people realize. And I understand that human impulse to just want it to go away. And I imagine that that's what a lot, lot of people do. They'll just find a way to either silently leave, retire, as you put it, and, 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 then, and then the problem is alleviated. But actually, unless there are more people like yourself being seen to take a stand against it, the problem will be perpetuated. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I tell you, that, I mean, I mentioned at the start, you said it's been an interesting time. Of course, it was a horrific time for, for the initial few weeks. Uh, but it has also been an uplifting time because... Um, that those I mentioned just now, you know, some people who were strangers to me getting in touch and offering support. Uh, scores of students who I didn't know got in touch, offering, you know, saying they could absolutely see very, very clearly what was happening, and it wasn't right, and it wasn't fair, and they desperately hoped I would counter it. Lots and lots of academics across the university, but also from other universities in several different countries, and from members of the public got in touch. All of nearly all of them strangers to me, that mattered enormously. And so in terms of responses to events like this, I think the, the best thing we can do is increase the number of people who, first of all, get in touch to show to, to, with people concerned to show that we could, they are seen, that you can see what's happening and that it's not right. But better still, um, actually say publicly that this is not right. So of the people in the university who got in touch with me, I mean, uh, the overwhelming majority, who were very decent people, don't get me wrong, getting in touch, showing moral support, but also saying, I will not say this in public. I'm too scared. And that shows that we have a really serious problem. How prevalent do you think this problem is? I mean, I, I've been contacted by a number of academics who, who say similar things that, you know, they are they do feel that they have to uh, self-censor, that they can't actually express the views that they, they feel. And that sometimes this has a knock-on effect for academic freedom and research, actually. Uh, and that this, this can create this stifling environment. As speaking as someone inside higher education at the moment, I haven't been in it for many years, so I, I, I don't have your hands-on experience. How, how much of a problem do you think this is from an academic's perspective? So for most people, to be honest, you know, universities are big creatures. Our university has 45,000 students, 15,000 staff. Most just get on with their jobs and they can do their jobs fine. Most of these people and it, it, out of uh, absolutely god-awful mess that some people think they are. On the other hand, we do have a problem of a small minority uh, who are very censorious and very intolerant and who appear to have captured institutions like well to some extent people say they have captured our trade unions although as as it happens my trade union the ucu did decide to defend me um, and they've been very supportive um, but they have captured uh, certainly the sort of the uh, the the senior management to some extent they've they've pursued you know basically the loudest voices win through yes um, uh, and so they are, they are causing trouble and they, uh, there is a problem therefore of very pervasive self-censorship. And I would like to fight that. So, so this year I've managed to get senior management's agreement that I can spend this current year at the university working on um, 
campus how to improve campus social quality so that we can foster things like moral curiosity, um, a open-minded debate, and so on. And that's what I'll do until uh, the end of this academic year, and hopefully something good will come of that. And to what extent do you think this is a problem of uh, a generational problem, I suppose? Do you, do you get any, because I've had different conversations with different students about this, and a lot of students tell me uh, that they almost uh, resent the way in which their generation is uh, tainted by the media as, you know, snowflakes and censorious, when what they would say is, it's actually a very small minority of young people. And most young people are actually uh, against this kind of cancel culture, uh, but they seem to be, I suppose, tarnished by association. Do you think that's true? What, where do you think the students are on this? So I think there's always going to be intergenerational differences in uh, views on political, cultural, moral uh, issues. So for example, I have three offspring who are all kind of uh, at or near university age or a bit beyond, who probably disagree with me on some ways, some aspects of debates about race and gender and so on. Um, but I think all of them and all of their friends that I know would disagree very strongly with cancel culture. They right. say that's stupid and nasty. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I might at this point have been despairing of people of uh, the, the younger generations, if it hadn't been that a lot of the people who got in touch very quickly with me saying really, really constructive and interesting things were students. Yes. Um, so that showed there's plenty of people at Edinburgh University who really do care about decency and social quality, who really do want to have open debates, uh, um, who have got their hearts in the right place. Do you think that uh, at the heart of all of this is identity politics and the way in which uh, that can have a, um, an impact uh, on people's perception of just about everything? So, for instance, when it comes to this notion of decolonizing curricula, uh, all of a sudden it becomes about, well, how many dead white male uh, authors are on that reading list and that those should be maybe stripped away? I mean, do, do you think that this is really what the problem is here? So you could call that identity politics, but actually... It's mainly, if, 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 if you do your decolonization project in such a stupid way that all you're really doing is counting the number of people that appear to have a non-Eurocentric surnames on the reading list, that's just laziness and stupidity. Uh, that's not serious identity politics. I don't happen to be a great fan of identity politics because I like people to be universalistic and cosmopolitan, to love all of humanity and its glorious diversity without um, pigeonholing one another into racialized categories. Um, but I'm an anthropologist, right? So I, I take identity seriously. It's an interesting aspect of people's character. So I've got nothing against people parading their identity and making a thing of it. That's what part of what makes life interesting. What is unpleasant is when identity politics become a, becomes a kind of us versus them oppressed versus oppressor uh, yeah. argument, because then it gets toxic and divisive um, and, you know, bad for moral progress. Because I have uh, spoken to different people about this idea of decolonization, and it, it seems to mean different things to different people. Some people that would say, well, all we're doing here is we're expanding reading lists and we're, we're looking at uh, people who have historically been marginalized and haven't been uh, represented in higher education and in study. Uh, and to me, that seems like a perfectly reasonable uh, approach to take. But then, on the other hand, you see the way in which these ideas are implemented. And to give you an example, um, you had the, uh, the, the Sheffield University video that made the claim that the only reason we study William Shakespeare, Chaucer, Virginia Woolf, Blake, uh, is because they're white. Uh, and that's the only reason they've ended up within the canon of English literature. This, this, this strikes me as... Uh, that is where I feel that decolonization it becomes a form of crude uh, identity politics. Do you, yes. How do you understand this idea of decolonization? So, so yeah, that's another uh, sort of ugly aspect of identity politics, uh, which essentially projects, um, you know, I think it's fine for people to, to, to make a fuss about their own identity, but to project identity car categories onto other people and say that that's all that is interesting about them is, is seriously toxic. 
Um, yes. And that's what seems to be going on there. It's a kind of prejudice. So in, if, if you're kind of counting the surnames on a reading list, you're, you're playing a kind of dumbing down uh, game that is based on prejudice. Yes. So this idea of um, uh, that we can divide humanity and history into two classes, and that is the oppressor class and the oppressed class, uh, it strikes me as a very reductive uh, view of history and humanity anyway, uh, and, and probably not quantifiable in such simplistic terms and, and not really achievable anyway. Where do you think all of this has, has come from? So that even literature uh, and art is, is often by these activists only ever interpreted as um, manifestations of the will to power. It's, it's, it's power games. It's people, writers exercising their their privilege relating to the notion of group identity uh, onto more marginalized groups. Where do you think this has come from? So I think it's always been there in universities, particularly in the social uh, studies areas. Um, if you go back to the 19th century, I think there's another cause or another trend that we can uh, identify that under, uh, underpins it, which um, I, it's what I've called miserabilism. You, you may, as you may know, I, my uh, main um, specialism nowadays is that the study of happiness. And one reason why I lurched into this into happiness studies from international development studies and inter international development activism, which is what I specialized in before, is because I got fed up with the all pervasive miserabilism of the social sciences. By miserabilism, I mean the default assumption that what is interesting about society is what's wrong with society, that society is by, by default a source of harms and evil. And from that assumption that society is bad, society is pathological, um, comes the assumption that if one of the things that's wrong with society is inequality, inequality must be the fault of the oppressor, right? Yes. So those two twin assumptions go together. They've been going for more than 100 years now. If you go back to the 19th century, to the antecedents of um, social science, well, Marx will be obviously a clear influence on that, but even Marx was interested in social progress and happiness and focusing on possible sources of social good. But yes. he inserted this idea that it might be helpful to divide the world into, so classify the world in terms of oppressors versus oppressed. Yes. So from that comes this idea that anyone who is at all associated with power or privilege, instead of seeing them as a source of potential good, you know, potential philanthropists or potential helpers um, or potential inspiration on how to live well, you see them uh, as nothing but a source of uh, unfair abuse of power. Yes. But that to me makes, in a, in a Marxist sense, makes a little bit more sense because you have, when it comes to economic inequality, you have something very, very tangible and, and, and clear where you can see where there are people who don't have the opportunities that other, others have. But when you reduce it to, to group identity and particularly historical grievances relating to group identity, you get yourself in a muddle because it isn't as simple as white people have always oppressed uh, people of all other ethnicities. I mean, where does that leave the Irish? Uh, for instance, this doesn't, it, 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 it strikes me as just reducing something that's actually incredibly complex uh, to, to a very simple analysis. Absolutely. So, so the really big difference between Karl Marx, who was in favor of progress and quite optimistic about the possibilities of progress and his mechanism was to sort out class differences. Um, a contemporary people who are sometimes calling themselves Marxist or sometimes called cultural Marxists have given in essentially to cultural pessimism. Uh, they've given in to this idea that people are endlessly, permanently imprisoned in these boxes, um, and that there's no that there's no kind of collaborative resolution that is possible. And so this is why we get this idea that, um, for instance, to take the issue of race, that, that racism is is so deeply embedded into society that it's actually foundational uh, to Western philosophy and ideas, and that means we can never escape it. In other words. Uh, people of color will always be oppressed, white people will always be complicit in oppression and white supremacy. And there's a kind of determinism about this, that, that we are stuck with this situation. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that seems, so that's very different. That's, that, that's their idea, isn't it? That's the activist stance. Yeah. And I think one of the, the most important questions you can ask of any kind of uh, social activist is this, 
if if you uh, are taking uh, action against injustices or harms or whatever, do you have a vision of uh, an achievable future that uh, in which people live well together? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it's crucial to ask that of any racial activist. If they don't have a vision of a brighter future in which human beings live well together, then the, you know we cannot take their activism seriously. And the trouble is, so many people have got so distracted on activism as an end in itself, as a kind of culture of pessimism and complaint, that they have forgotten those aspirational things. As one who is interested in the idea of happiness, do you see this as a kind of uh, a self-destructive ideology or self-destructive worldview insofar as I, I, I consider often it must be quite a burden to go through life convinced uh, that we are mere puppets uh, being controlled by these invisible power structures and that uh, society is inherently toxic. Uh, I mean, it, it must be kind of an unfulfilling existence, I imagine. Uh, yes, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's probably wrong to speculate too wildly on the psychological roots into toxic forms of activism. But one route I think that is a very plausible route is if people are deeply unhappy in, uh, in themselves, uh, it presumably it feels good to project some of that unhappiness onto uh, uh, other people or onto society in general. So if you rally around fellow pessimists, and say society is uh, nothing but a source of harms, it's all evil, they're all evil. Um, you know, perhaps that is comforting insofar as it distracts people from their own problems. Whereas a really benign form of social activism would, would include uh, visions of trajectories towards social progress that allow people to actually sort out their own problems while doing so. So one of the great lessons from happiness studies, for example, has been that if you if you actively volunteer as a social activist or just as a, a more day-to-day -day pra pragmatic volunteer, uh, that's not, not just likely to be good for the people who you're trying to do good to, it's likely to be good for you because it gives you a sense of pos positive purpose in life. And I completely understand your point about how we shouldn't uh, be engaging in kind of cod psychology and trying to intuit what's going on and what, what are the psychological motivations behind uh, the activist behavior. Um, but then on the other hand, it, it is tempting because when I see this kind of behavior, and particularly what happened to you, it strikes me as old fashioned bullying. It strikes me as, as, as people who are enjoying their power uh, over somebody else. And that to me is potentially quite ironic because these are activists who claim to have grounded their philosophy in the idea of power structures and these Foucauldian notions of, the, of society and how society works and the relationship between power and language. And yet here they are uh, actually uh, exercising power over someone else in, in one of the most vicious, uh, cruel and vindictive ways possible. Do you think I'm onto something here? I, I think you almost certainly are. Um, uh, of course, some of them appear to be quite conscious of this. So, you know, you, you mentioned the term gaslighting earlier. I think right from day one, the people who attacked me online were anticipating that other people would gaslight them by blaming them for the attacks on me. So they're, so they're, they're clearly thinking a lot about this issue of claim and counterclaim. Uh, apparently, um, some, one of my supporters used the term cry bullies, and they were very upset by that because uh, it, you know, it, it, it appeared to be gaslighting them. But it, it, I thought it was actually a fair term. I think that that term really encapsulates a lot, of, a lot of what this movement is. It's people seizing power through victimhood uh, in order to victimize others. And this also makes it very difficult to counter, doesn't it? Because if people are painting themselves as the victim, and yet at the same time, they are the aggressors. Uh, it's, 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 it's not easy to negotiate that. Yeah, and what's terribly sad about it is that there are in life some real victims and some real oppressed. Um, and uh, if, if people do this kind of performative and competitive victimhood and indulge in it in this kind of endlessly uh, pessimistic and toxic way with no resolution, it harms ultimately the very people who they hope to be, um, they, they claim to be wanting to help. Yes. So as someone who's got a sense of, of, of history and how movements work and uh, how ideas catch on 
within societies and trends within human behavior. Do you see this as a, a kind of unprecedented uh, movement? Do you think this is just a temporary thing? Because I'm continually having these conversations with people who are saying this is just a glitch. People will get will will return to you know some core enlightenment values of reason and debate and discussion and the marketplace of ideas. And yet it seems to be embedding itself more and more and more. And those ideals, uh, on my more pessimistic days, I feel are kind of slipping away. Do you have any insights into this? Well, Andrew, you're talking to a happiness lecturer, so I have to put a positive spin on this. Um, yeah, I, I, I think some of some aspects of uh, these trends have been there all along. As I say, they, I think in the social sciences, they go back to the 19th century. Um, but I think what is what is new and what is particularly worrying at the moment is the way in which they they have been amplified by, well, in recent years, by two things, by social media, where they were already being amplified. So the ability to join in uh, a kind of mob frenzy or a moral panic um, is greatly amplified by the speed in which ideas, bad ideas spread on, on social media. They were also amplified during COVID, particularly by the sort of general sense of boredom and frustration and alienation and so on. Um, but do I think we're going to be through them in the next few years? Yeah, I think we, we will find ways through. And, uh, you know, there, there are particular patterns to some of the cancel culture. There's, there's a race pattern. There's a gender and identity pattern. I think we're beginning to see backlashes and constructive backlashes, not just kind of polarized um, a culture war backlashes, but actually constructive backlashes against both of those people really trying hard to find a way through. And that's why I'm so keen on the idea that if we shift gear and focus on, first of all, things that go right with people's lives rather than focusing on everything that goes wrong and victimhood, if we focus on what we could do together on our common interests, and we, we have to do that through curiosity, through questions, through conversations, through... And on university, we can do it through exercises in empathy, asking people to put themselves in other people's shoes, which is something anthropology has always done. We will find a way through these kind of impasses. Most people are decent. Most people also can be optimistic if you give them a chance. I think um, you might be able to anticipate what I would identify as the flaw in that reasoning, which is that you are dealing with a, an activist group who fundamentally uh, think that conversation and free speech is the problem. And so it's all very well sort of extending to them and saying, let's have the conversation, let's let's be optimistic, let's question each other and probe each other's values. They think that's the issue. You know, when you when you hear MPs describe, who was the MP, Nadia Whittam, I think, describe debate as a fetish. You know, when you have that kind of mentality and it's so deeply embedded in, in, in powerful institutions, such as the government, such as the civil service, such as higher education, so how can you have conversations with people who don't want to have conversations? So yeah, I absolutely agree that there are some people um, who will not be persuaded by um, polite uh, conversations based on reason and evidence. That's absolutely true. I, as an academic, of course, I have to say our first weapons are conversation, curiosity, reason, evidence, all those enlightenment values in which modern universities uh, have been have been based. So at academics, we have we absolutely have to base most of our fighting back on those things. But in terms of how you how will you persuade people to see that some movements and some ideas are really just either silly or downright dangerous, there are other weapons. So one other weapon, which a lot of my colleagues have been telling me, you know, perhaps we should use this weapon, is you can just turn your backs and ignore people. If they're not right in your face, Eventually, if they don't get attention, they will just get bored. But the other weapon, which you know more about perhaps than anybody else, is satire. Satire and humor um, are things that, as academics and politicians probably too, are, are, are a bit more inhibited in using those, that weapon. But satire, I think, is, I mean, people satirize, some of these movements are, of course, satirizing themselves. Yes. But, um, I, I greatly admire what you've done with, for example, Titania McGrath. Um, I think that's, I don't think that's just a piece of fun. I think that is a, a, a really, really important moral weapon. And again, going back to previous centuries, those weapons have always been used against bad politics. 
satire has been used against the power, powerful and against um, social movements as a way of persuading people that actually we do look a bit silly. And then there's the other question of what, what's going to happen with higher education now? I, I imagine you've seen these developments with the, uh, the university in Austin, um, and, uh, which was Barry, Barry Weiss and Peter Bogosian and various other academics are, and Neil Ferguson is involved as well. There's Ralston College as well in Savannah. So the, these institutions are, are coming up because there are, there are people who now think, in a sense, higher education is almost lost. <laughs> that would be a very pessimistic view that I'm sure you wouldn't share, uh, but that we have to set up institutions now that are committed to free inquiry, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, academic freedom, all of those things. Do you think that's necessary or do you think that is taking things too far and actually we should be attempting to salvage uh, what we have? So at, at the moment, my mindset is all about salvaging and, and uh, uh, recovering space within universities for the values that we should all be holding dear. But I have got nothing against so far, in a way, I've got nothing against that movement in Austin, Texas, and I greatly admire, as it so happens, I greatly admire most of the big name individuals who are associated with it. They are all very, very good people, very bright people. My understanding, I could be wrong, but my understanding is most of them do not think they're trying to set up a kind of um, parallel uh, system to, as an alternative to the university. And um, I think they they still they still value what what universities stand for. Mm -hmm. I don't see the Austin, Texas venture as a kind of university. I think it's a kind of, you know, a different kind of thing. And right. we should be innovating and trying different kinds of things. One problem, perhaps you could argue with universities like schools is that they haven't been reinvented enough. Um, they haven't been challenged enough by parallel alternative institutions. Um, but I don't think most of the big names on the list of people associated with that Austin, Texas uh, um, venture um, are, are really thinking they're going to tear down universities. That's not going to happen. No, I, I don't think it, it, it is like that. But I think it is, it is uh, you know, having this idea of setting up an institution that is so openly, openly states it makes the case for free speech and free inquiry and, and, and attempts to re-articulate uh, the significance of those values within a higher educational establishment. I think that's, I think that is a positive step. And my, my, my hope would be that given that they are doing this and making these gestures that other universities might follow suit. And as you say, that's almost what you're expecting from Edinburgh, isn't it? That they are going to make a statement uh, that says that they will support academic freedom and they, and they, and they will not tolerate uh, these efforts to undermine it. Yes. Well, they have, I mean, partly in response to my case and Anne Henderson's case, they have, had a big high-level meeting on freedom of expression, and they say that they're sort of trying to sort of build a um, mechanisms throughout the university to uh, sort of introduce a students to um, discourse on freedom of expression and the, the value of free uh, free speech. But in a sense, they've all they've already always paid lip service to those values. The problem is not actually upholding them and not not realizing that actually beyond that basic minimal standard where you say we, 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 we will protect freedom of expression, there's much more interesting stuff that you can do. And that's why I've, I've given the label uh, shared curiosity to the project that I'm doing for the rest of this academic year. You know, we had to come up with what, what's Neil going to do for the year? I said, we'll do it on shared curiosity because that seems to be to be a more aspirational value that takes us to the heart of what people should think that they're joining universities for. So, yeah. And in a sense, uh, you're able therefore to draw from these, the, you know, let's face it, these terrible experiences that you've, you've been through and you're actually able to create something positive out of it. Is that the goal of the shared curiosity scheme? Well, obviously I've got personal psychological goals that it would, I would, I will feel, I mean, I'm already feeling a huge amount better. Um, if, if it goes well at the end, by, by the end of the next few months, I'll feel that I've you know, pulled something really, really good out of a very, very bad situation. So it's definitely worth, definitely worth a try. But also I think it's the same at, at a higher level. I think there's lots of people at the university who feel very wounded by these bad events of recent years, who know that the university's reputation has been really, really badly dented and who would love to see some uh, you know, hi highly visible 
um, aspirational activities going on that help us recapture what's best about Edinburgh. I mean, it is, after all, a, a wonderful city and a wonderful university with a fantastic past. It's a very big and unwieldy university, but that means that lots of good creative things are still going on. We just need to kind of find out where they're happening and make sure that people know about them. Well, it's fantastic to talk to someone who's so optimistic about, about these things. And of course, who better to talk to about this than an expert in happiness? Uh, it's really great to hear your ideas, Neil, but also thank you so much for coming on and talking about your experiences, which have been very difficult. And it, it's great that you, you've come out of it with some positive thoughts. I'm trying, Andrew, and thank you so much. It's done me a power of goodness talking to you. Uh, all the very best. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks Thank you. for joining me. Thank you for joining me on the Free Speech Nation podcast. Uh, my name's Andrew Doyle. I've been talking to Neil Finn. And please do like and subscribe if you enjoyed it and uh, join us next week. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.